welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, a Technical Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep for Western United Dairies. Welcome to episode two, week two of January. I feel like this week has flown by. I just had a very weird deja vu moment when I was um, reading the introduction. I felt like we just did this. I know it has flown by, which is maybe good. Um, maybe we can move through January quickly and move into a brighter, happier, hopefully rainier February. <laughs> I agree. I think we're really hoping it's been really dry, but hopefully we'll get some rain in February and into March down this way too. Yes, we need the rain and an added bonus would be a little snow in the mountains. We can all take a little side ski trip, hopefully. Well, Darby, today we have a pretty action-packed episode. Despite the week flying by, a lot did happen. Um, so we'll have a market update from Tiffany, and we'll have um, a visit with Tom Barcelos, our retired Western United Dairies Board President, who is now chairing the California Beef Council. You had a chance to talk with Anya about quota. Um, there's a few things going on there, and she did a quick recap of what has happened. And then Paul um, gave a great webinar yesterday. It was about 12 minutes long about trucks and truck reporting and all the issues truck owners should be thinking about. So we are sharing that with our listeners for today. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pretty interesting and uh, important info this week. So with that said, maybe we'll jump right into Tiffany's market update. Hello, everybody. Hope you had a great week. Well, we had another interesting uh week in the dairy markets. Uh, we ended up losing a little ground on cheese. Blocks ended at 183, down eight and three quarter cents for the week. Most of that damage was done on Friday when we lost seven cents. Barrels closed at $1.5725. We lost eight cents there. Butter um, also got hit pretty hard, down 18 cents to 129, lowest price we've seen in some time. Nonfat gained a penny to a dollar twenty, and whey gained three cents to a uh, fifty-three cents. Uh, did you know that every penny increase in whey adds six cents to the class three price? Kind of a sneaky little contributor there. Heading over to fundamentals, I think as we look at cheese, the market is really still trying to sort out um, kind of our supply demand balance. From a supply side, it's Plenty well known. Uh, we seem to have a lot of milk in all regions of the U.S. Uh, additionally, plenty of cheese available. Uh, Midwest spot milk price is going for five and a quarter cents uh, per hundred weight under class. That compares to two twenty-five uh, last year. So there is plenty of cheap milk available to any manufacturing plant that might want it. It's really on the demand side of the picture that I think we're still trying to sort a little bit more out when it comes to cheese. We know that food service and institutional business remain soft. Uh, retail sales are above prior year levels, um, but by modest levels. And um, really where the unknowns lie are in the food box program and what those bids might mean and corresponding demand for cheese to fill those orders. And um, additional government announcements keep rolling. Uh, we heard uh, just yesterday of another $40 million uh, USDA distributed to buy uh, cheese and processed cheese through Section 32 funding. 
that product will go to nutrition assistance programs. At this point, our take is that those dollars and that pound, those pounds of cheese could be filling gaps that uh, of cheese that would normally be going elsewhere. Um, programs like, uh, particularly through food service, school food service type programs. Uh, but in, in addition to the cheese buy, they also announced uh, $40 million uh, to purchase butter. This is the second of such butter announcements, and we would not be surprised to see uh, some more rolling in, in, uh, out for butter. Uh, we do suspect that might be some new demand and could help sup, soak up some excess supplies that we have out on the marketplace. Right now for butter, we're in an interesting window Folks have until the end of February uh, to sell butter at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that was made before December 1st, 2020. So down to about a month and a half here to sell product that has a longer or more dated um, production date on it. So it's not a surprise to see, see some additional volume roll through Chicago as folks look to liquidate those um, dated dated. Um, pounds of butter. Uh, I, th I think beyond that, the markets could look a little different uh, once we flip uh, the calendar to March and USD keeps buying. Um, hopefully that will lend some support to the butter, butter markets. And certainly as we look at the butter futures curve, um, the market seems to uh, feel that that might be the case. Uh, butter futures are quite elevated beyond March. Uh, actually, up into the 170s uh, as we hit April. Next week, uh, Monday is a holiday, no dairy trading on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, we have another global dairy trade event, so we'll be able to get an updated uh, read on the powder markets and international demand. Uh, beyond that, have a wonderful weekend and we'll catch up with you next week. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Now, without further ado, we will listen in on Darby and my interview with Tom Barcelos. All right, well, we're excited today to have one of our members and I believe past board members, Tom Barcelos on the pod today. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Tom. Yeah, good morning, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. I know Melissa and I have kind of been chatting back and forth about different guests and getting people on and you've kind of been on our radar for a while. You're so involved in, in so many things. So yeah, we're pretty excited. Well, you know, the future's bright because that's the way we always look at things. <laughs> it doesn't always turn out that way, but, uh, you know, we have an uh, optimistic outlook and uh, hopefully it will come to fruition. Yeah, Tom, I'm really interested. First, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about your past involvement with Western because you are a past board member and past board president, actually. Um, you took over as board president just a couple years after I started with LUD. So maybe we won't mention dates and how many years that's been, but you served um, on the board for, for nine years and um, served as board president for three. So any, any advice we have elections coming up to any potential board members out there? Well, actually uh, you were just a little girl on my first round because <laughs> I served nine years on the board okay. and was termed out. And then, uh, after a couple years, uh, was asked to come back 
and uh, served another nine. My last, uh, uh, my last three. Well, actually, uh, served uh, five, then three as president, okay. and then uh, last one as uh, executive member. That's but, great. Uh, I felt uh, when I first came on that Western uh, brought a lot of value uh, and information. Um, got to know producers all over the state and eventually all over the country. Um, so yeah, it was it was really beneficial and it actually kind of sets me up for uh, you know this coming year as chair of the California Beef Council. Yeah, so that's some exciting news. We asked you to be on today, Tom, because um, about a week and a half ago, you were selected as the incoming chair for the Beef Council. So could you talk to us a little bit about Beef Council and the importance of dairy producers being involved? They're, they really um, push that involvement for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important. So the Beef Council board is made up of uh, equal representatives from three, three factions. Um, naturally, the beef industry, uh, which represent uh, feedlots. Uh, another one that uh, represents uh, uh, rangeland uh, producers. And uh, also then another segment from the dairy industry. And then also the packers. So it's uh, represented by, by the full industry partnership. Uh, because of course, you know, there's checkoff dollars that come from every faction. And, um, you know, we share equal board representation on that. And there's actually a rotation uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, the chair alternates between the different segments. Perfect. And this year is the, the dairy year. Um, how long is that term again, Tom? Could you, is it just for one year? Yeah, it's a yearly term. And of course, uh, you know, I served as vice chair this past year. Uh, behind Jesse Larios, who was uh, from the from the feedlot side, uh, great representative of the industry, uh, great leader, uh, in particular in challenging times. Uh, as you know, uh, Zoom meetings for boards can be a little difficult. Uh, <laughs> it's a little easier for a podcast, but yeah. uh, you know the challenge is is uh, you know body language, uh, you know not not being able to. Uh, have some really better conversations when you can kind of be off uh, off mic and and just be sure that all the things are shared. It, it's a challenge, but uh, you know it was a great past year, and uh, we look forward to doing uh, great things coming up. Great. Well, the Beef Council is it's obviously a checkoff. It uses dollars from the beef and dairy industries to promote beef. Um, and could we talk a little bit about how dairy producers' dollars are going to be put to work? on the beef council in the coming year? Some of maybe your big ticket items that you guys are hoping to accomplish? Well, number one is there's uh, our budget, which comes, as you say, from the beef checkoff, the dollar checkoff from every animal uh, is, is fairly well split. And, uh, but there's uh, our program budget is $1.2 million. And that covers uh, quite a lot. You know, we have uh, our marketing. Uh, you'll, you'll see, you know, the beef, it's what's for dinner promotions. We're using that in California. Uh, we work closely with uh, national programs as well and, uh, you know, share marketing strategies. Uh, you know, we have our consumer marketing, brand marketing, so that, uh, you know, if you go in the grocery stores and we have partnerships with different brands, 
um, whether it's, uh, you know, we had tequila and tacos, you know, that tacos use the beef naturally. There's, there's all those little catchy things that you don't realize your, your dairy dollar is helping promote. Um, of course, then we have community, uh, producer communications on how to market things, uh, in a better way. And, uh, then we have, uh, external authorization, uh, where we're allowed to, uh, we don't specifically have licenses on certain things, but we do have, uh, you know, program opportunities that we share with, uh, with other industry. Okay. So it, it's very well-rounded. I think it's interesting that you bring up like those little slogans and stuff. I think there's, it's so important to point out, there's so many things that the checkoffs do and work towards that we don't really think of every day, but we also have them in our head. Every time I think beef or see a marketing slogan, I think, beef is what's for dinner. And so it's neat to see how that's all intertwined in it. It sounds like it's intertwined on a state level and then you work with a national level as well to kind of keep that all continuous. Yeah, and that's actually kind of interesting because you know, the beef it's what for dinner kind of got retired just a little bit um, the last couple years. And uh, you know, after some of the surveys which is what it takes to find out what people pay attention to um, they discovered that uh, it was going to be beneficial to bring it back. And it also reignited a lot of memories uh, for people who remember that. And the fact that they were cooking at home as opposed to going out uh, really sparked a new excitement and uh, an uptick in uh, hits on the websites that promote those kinds of things. So, you know, surprisingly, the, uh, the pandemic keeping people at home uh, actually helped, uh, you know, on our promotional and made our promotional dollars that much more effective. Yeah, it's somewhat of a, of a silver lining, I guess. Yeah, sad to say that's what it took, but it, it, it actually did make a difference. So, uh, you know, our, our money is actually uh, paying dividends. Yeah, I follow quite a few. I like to cook, so I follow some food bloggers on Instagram and different social media platforms. And over the last year, I've seen a couple do like uh, beef. It's what's for dinner weeks. And, you know, and they'll, they'll do a whole week of beef recipes. And I think they get a lot of engagement. So it's really neat to see that kind of on the, the other side of things as if you were just a consumer and didn't really know, you know, that marketing was going on. You know, Darby, and that's really exciting for me to hear that because I don't get out in the areas where, you know, those kinds of conversations are held. And, uh, you know, so the fact that I'm hearing from you, um, you know, as a Western United representative and, you know, those things are hitting home with you, even though we don't talk about so much of that on the dairy side of things, it's just kind of taken for granted. Yeah, it's definitely nice to see and it's out there and I think, I think it's doing its job. It's a little more affordable too, I've noticed. I'm kind of an elder millennial and I think Darby's probably on the younger end of the millennial spectrum, but I know myself and a lot of my friends who may not be um, as prone to going to a restaurant and ordering beef, it's a little more affordable to use it at home and just the work that these checkoffs have been doing to educate people about how to prepare beef and affordable ways to eat it, it's really um, helped out a lot. I hear from a lot of my friends like, oh, I'm gonna try this new you know, beef enchilada recipe or, or something of that effect. And of course, Taco Tuesday, really popular among the millennial set. So I think that's been a big help also in our generation. 
So I think what's really cool is the last, uh, you know, over the last year uh, with the lockdowns and whatnot, you know, naturally social media has really uh, given people some of that outside communications and camaraderie ship. I really noticed that, uh, you know, the food thing has really popped up on social media. And, you know, this, uh, I, I actually belong to a group called My Hometown Recipes. You know, and there's, over, there's over 2,000, actually I think it's pushing 2,200 members, um, you know, with food recipes and, uh, you know, some really interesting things. And so I had the opportunity, you know, occasionally to post some things from Beef Council, uh, you know, links and whatnot. And, uh, and it's appreciated, you know, nobody's there that doesn't wanna be there. Um, and I, I see them posting from different areas as well. So uh, in that sense, you know, the outreach has really become more effective again, you know, sadly for the reason, but uh, with people cooking at home, those, those recipe social media things really seem to be taken off. Yeah, and it's, it's just really nice to see social media bring people together in that way with all the division we see throughout the whole world these days. It's, it, it, you can't get too worked up over sharing wholesome family recipes and food is really what brings people together. So that really, I don't know, it makes me feel good for hopefully a direction we're going as a society right now. Yeah, and another thing that I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, as far as chairing the Beef Council this year is there seems to be uh, more uh, complete science on the benefit of beef uh, that dispels a lot of the older myths of, uh, you know, beef causes heart disease, causes a, a variety of things, or red meat, I should say. Yeah. And, and I think it's an opportunity to capitalize on the information age and the science, because a lot of people are asking for science and not the emotions. So I think yeah. it's a good opportunity. Yeah, I think we can look at ways that beef is not only healthy for our bodies, but we're really demonstrating how it's healthy for our planet as well. And that's really exciting to me. So we love our checkoffs and all the work that they're able to do with, with producer dollars that we can't, as a, as a trade association, we're running around doing a lot of other stuff. So this, it's really nice to have these tools to, to work with these groups. Yeah. And that's key is the fact that, uh, you know, with dairy representation on the beef board, um, you know, sometimes we have to remind um, other producers, you know, beef producers that, hey, dairy supplies a lot of beef. And, uh, you know, we're all here for the same reason. Uh, you know, whether we may not have the prime cuts, we leave that to you. We'll take care of the hamburger and, the, and some of the other cuts. But, you know, we're all in it together and we're all supporting the market. So, uh, it, it's a great thing that they, they have it structured so there's equal representation and, uh, and a full rotation so it doesn't get too lopsided. It's really good stuff. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for taking time to join us this morning. Um, before we let our guests go, we always ask a question at the end. It's um, any advice, thoughts, or just anything you'd like to share with our listeners as a dairy producer and a beef producer who you know, has, has been in this industry for a while and has a little bit of experience, um, we would love to hear it. Well, naturally, you know, the thing I have to say, it's beef, that's what's for dinner. Yes. <laughs> but at, at the same time, um, you know, ice cream goes good as a cap off. 
Yeah. Uh, you should always have melted cheese on your burgers and uh, have an ice cold glass of milk uh, with every meal. Um, but yeah, the opportunities uh, are endless if you take the time to, to uh, take advantage of the, of the time and the tools that we have available. And um, I want to thank, uh, thank you guys for doing the podcast and sharing the information with all of our listeners. And uh, I hope we can, uh, we can grow the listenership as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Tom. We will have you back here one of these days. Um, maybe when Beef Council has some exciting news or you're always welcome back on any time you want to share with our, our audience anything about Beef Council or the dairy. So thanks again. We'll have a happy rest of the new year. And you guys as well. Thank you and take care. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. We hope to have you back soon. Next, Darby sat down with Anya for a quick review of what has happened in the world of California quota over the last year and what we can expect in the coming months. I'm here with Western United CEO Anya Radabaugh, and we are going to have a discussion on some updates in what's going on in quota today. Thanks for taking the time to be on, Anya. You're welcome. Yay, quota. I say that every day I get to talk about quota. Yay, quota. <laughs> So kind of as we get started here, we'll take a look at where we are and maybe talk about what actions are currently being taken to amend or terminate the quip. Sure. I think that I will go through with lightning speed some of the litigations that have occurred uh, in 2020, which were numerous. Uh, they started in 2019, and then I will dwell a little bit longer on what's currently happening and what will be before producers in just a matter of weeks. So back in December 2019, uh, Stop Quip, which is an organized group of overbase producers, um, primarily people, as far as I can tell, that do not own quota, uh, they filed a lawsuit against CDFA claiming that CDFA had not legally established the Quip, that is the Quota Implementation Program. Uh, arguments were held virtually on July 31st, 2020, and the judge issued a ruling on August 3rd in favor of CDFA. Uh, who was bolstered in that case by the Attorney General, finding that the quip was valid. And so on October 1st, Stop Quip filed a notice of appeal to that ruling, and the date for opening arguments for that particular appeal is still uh, to be determined. Uh, second thing that happened, uh, which was a pretty big deal, Stop Quip filed a petition with CDFA to suspend Chapter 3.5 of the Food and Ag Code, which would, in their point of view, effectively terminate the quip uh, right away. And the petitions that were gathered uh, should not be discounted. They were qualified um, as a legally counted petition, which uh, essentially signaled to Secretary Karen Ross after she validated by after she validated the signatures that a hearing needed to be held uh, to determine the validity of Stop Quip's um, assertion that Quip should be terminated immediately. So they had a hearing um, uh, between June 9th and 10th, and Western United Dairies was involved in that. Um, that uh, there was also about 250 producers involved in that. I think it was the highest uh, highest turnout ever for any kind of dairy meeting. Um, and that was followed by a ruling on July 24th by the administrative law judge who issued a recommendation that the petition was legally defective and therefore should be denied uh, by the department. So Secretary Ross uh, fairly quickly at that point adopted the administrative law judge's recommendation on the order of decision on August 14th, 2020. 
So since that time, uh, StopQuip has also filed a petition for writ of mandate to try to overturn that decision, which is uh, also still pending. So um, moving on from those two massive rounds of litigation, in June, United Dairy Families of California, which is another group of organized uh, producers in California, they uh, represent both non-quota holders and middle-of-the-road folks that wanted to see a solution. They submitted a petition to CDFA to sunset the quip on March 1st, 2025, and it would also equalize the RQAs to the level currently in place in Fresno, Kings, and Tulare County. CDFA took their time in assessing whether or not that petition was valid, but they did announce on July 24th, 2020, that the sunset plan exceeded the number of signatures necessary to qualify. This triggered a PRB meeting, which was scheduled for August 27th to consider this petition. And at that meeting, the PRB recommended to the secretary that she hold a public hearing to consider the petition. Um, the public hearing was actually held on September 30th. It was not as uh, hot to trot and controversial, and it was presided over by the same administra administrative law judge as the prior two. The ALJ issued his proposed decision on December 9th, 2020, stating that the petition must proceed to a producer referendum. And that recommendation is now before Secretary Ross, who, may, who will make the final decision on whether or not a referendum is held. We fully expect that she is going to accept that recommendation um, and a referendum timeline is uh, rumored to be issued out the first part of February, 2021. Great, so when we're looking at this referendum, can you talk about what the voting threshold that is gonna be used to run the referendum is? Sure, the referendum threshold uh, will be the same as found in current section 62717 of chapter three food and ag code. What that means for producers is that it is 65% of total number of producers in the state representing 51% of the milk produced or 51% of the total producers milking in the state representing 65% of the milk produced. So the threshold is the same threshold that was used to put the quip in in 2017. It was also the same threshold that was used to absorb the Gonzales Milk Pooling Act uh, way back when. It was also the same threshold that was used to put the RQAs in in 1992, excuse me, 1994. And so that threshold is both a quantitative and a plurality measurement of how producers in the state feel. When we're looking at this threshold and looking at it by groups, what percentage of quota holders must vote yes for this referendum to pass? It's difficult to make that prediction because of the two layers of voting required. Um, so you have to hit again that quantitative and the plurality threshold in either situation. Um, but we do have some scenarios on our website which producers can explore. It's quite a few. So if you look broadly at quota ownership status, you have to look at the category of how much quota they own versus how much quota they don't own. So if a lot of folks that own quota do not come out, the percent yes drops down to about 45%. If the quota ownership status uh, where you get a lot of the non quota owners coming out to vote, plus a few of those having a little bit of quota, 
and maybe some in the middle there where you've got about 50% of their milk covered by quota, you're looking at a much higher turnout and a much quicker ability to move the referendum forward. Again, these numbers are the differences of a 10%, 2%, depending on how you want to throw it at them. But the, the biggest and best answer to that question is turnout. If there's not enough producers to turn out to hit either of these qualitative and plurality thresholds, then the referendum doesn't pass and QUIP stays in place as it is today. Well, there's certainly a lot of different scenarios that could happen moving forward. If QUIP is terminated via a referendum to sunset in 2025, will there be a payment to compensate the quota holders at that point? No. Uh, and essentially what we're looking at is a four-year sunset. Um, this has uh, been a hotly debated conversation in the circle of United Dairy Families. But again, because the sunset is set in stone for March 2025, and that date cannot be changed at this point, uh, we are estimating that the referendum would come into the early part of spring. And so if you're a producer owning quota, you need to do the calculation from that. But the answer is no. Uh, quota holders will not be compensated at this point. If I was a producer and I had quota, how much revenue would I receive from one pound of quota from now until the proposed sunset date? It's somewhere around $266 per pound of solids non-fat. So as right now, the uh, current price of quota is about $176 a pound per solids of non-fat. Um, that number can go up or down. So it really depends on what your price is. But uh, if we set it at a low number, which quota was hovering at for some time, it's approximately $266 per pound of solids non-fat. And if I was interested, could quota sales occur while we wait for decisions in these matters? Yes, a farmer can sell quota as long as it was acquired more than two years ago. Exceptions include family transfers or interstate succession. If a farmer sold quota, he has to wait 24 months before he can buy more. And in that same vein, can you tell us what the latest quota price was? It, as of January 5th, 2021, it is $176 per pound solids nonfat. Well, thanks so much for that update, Anya. Is there anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up today, our, our quota discussion? I invite producers to get in touch with Western. Um, our board has been very active in this issue. It's uh, certainly a divisive issue amongst California producers. Uh, it's uh, been a very heavy process the last couple years. If you're interested in more information about the economics of the United Dairy Families proposal, you can visit their website, which is complete with the full breadth of economics that were put into that, along with summaries of all the individual regional meetings that were held that helped United Dairy Families arrive at this conclusion for the industry. Um, you can also visit our website, Western United Dairies, uh, WUDDairies.com. Uh, we have a quota calculator where you can input your own values and see how you're going to fare in this petition. But if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at Anya, A-N-J-A, at wudairies.com. I'm happy to try to answer any questions you have. And uh, I can also put you in touch with any member of our board if you want to speak with someone on our board. Well, as always, thanks for taking the time to be on Anya. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. We want to thank Anya again for being on to talk about quota and we'll be sure to keep you updated with whatever happens to develop in the next few weeks. Now we're going to scoot on over to Paul's truck webinar. So welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, appreciate you all uh, being on here. Uh, my name is Paul Souza. I'm the Director of Environmental Services with Western United Dairies. And uh, we've been doing this uh, Zoom uh, kitchen table meeting uh, to be able to reach out to our members in our current times, um, social distancing and uh, less travel and the likes, uh, but still getting our uh, information and out there and, and questions answered. So uh, with that, on this meeting, I am gonna be focusing on issues with diesel trucks. And I'm not talking about pickups, I'm not talking about your Ford F-250 or F-350 or a Chevy 3500 or anything like that. I'm talking about a Ford F-450 and up, uh, including Freightliners, Peterbilts, Max, uh, and that kind of thing. And we are talking diesel engines only. If you have some um, you know, older truck that's got a gasoline engine, it's not covered by this. Um, a lot's been happening lately and I'm getting a lot of questions from members. I thought it was a, a timely time to um, get out there and present to our members. Uh, the format that I'm planning on doing here is I'm planning on having a presentation. Uh, I'm gonna talk through uh, some, some points that I have here and then I'll follow with a question and answer uh, segment that you can get to ask your questions. Uh, if you have questions, you can also feel free to call me directly after the presentation. Uh, if you have specific questions on a fleet, um, you know, either you know, on the, the call or uh, individually, I'd be happy to check it, to do that. So we're here because diesel trucks are a significant contributor to air pollution in California that affects human health. Uh, both in the form of particulate matter or soot, the black stuff we see coming out of uh, diesel exhaust pipes and oxides of nitrogen or NOx, which we cannot see. To meet requirements under the Federal Clean Air Act, the California Air Resources Board or ARB as I'll call them, has adopted regulations to reduce emissions from in-use diesel trucks. Newer diesel engines are required to meet much stricter emission standards and therefore, over a decade ago, the Air Resources Board developed the truck and bus rule, which requires the turnover of diesel trucks to those with engines meeting the newest emission control standards, having 2010 or newer model year engines. It basically requires that pretty much all heavy duty diesel trucks have a 2010 or newer engine by January of 2023. Uh, there is a time schedule that goes with it and how that's supposed to happen based on the age of the truck. I'm not going to get into that too much uh, because Western United, along with other agricultural groups, worked with the ARB to develop an extension for trucks used in agriculture. We were successful in getting the ag mileage extension into the rule, which allows trucks that are used in agriculture to continue to be used without meeting the regular turnover schedule. 
However, there were mileage limitations placed on those trucks, uh, on most of these trucks. Currently, the ag mileage limit is 10,000 miles per year, and that kind of has come down uh, as the rule has moved on. Uh, however, you had to register for these exemptions, and many folks did. Uh, but if someone did not register prior to the deadlines, which the last one was about seven years ago, these extensions do not apply, and you must follow the regular turnover schedule. However, the ag mileage extension and most of the other extensions expire at the end of 2022. That means that most of these trucks will have to be replaced with trucks having a 2010 or newer engine starting in January of 2023. I've had conversations with several members uh, who are aware of this deadline and they're trying to plan how they sm smoothly transition into 2023. Uh, this is especially important for uh, people that have many trucks so that they're not turning over five or 10 trucks in a matter of a few months. Uh, you know, they're trying to do a, a few per year uh, trying to control those costs and be able to absorb those costs. Um, there are a couple of limited options for keeping some of these older trucks beyond 2022. Uh, the first is the low use exemption, which applies to trucks that travel less than a thousand miles per year. And that does not expire. That has no deadline. You can keep using those trucks uh, the way the rule is currently written. I have talked to members that have uh, trucks that they use for filling free stalls, um, service trucks that they only use on the ranch or a backup feed truck truck that does not leave the farm that may be able to stay under that mileage. Uh, the second is for trucks operating in the northern one-third of the state where air quality is better. Trucks that operate only in this region will be okay if they have a diesel particulate filter or a DPF even if they do not have a 2010 engine. So some of these folks I'm talking to some of them in like Glen County or Mendocino County um, are going to be able to keep trucks that are a little bit older um, than everybody else because they do live in this um, region with better air quality. Those are the only two exemptions to the 2023 deadline that I'm aware of. And I, I realize that only a small number of trucks will be able to use them. So with that background out of the way, let's move on to the reporting deadline that's in front of us today. Trucks that are currently using the ag mileage extension or the low use exemption are required to report their odometer readings each January because these options have mileage limits. We are now in that reporting period, which ends on January 31st. I've been busy helping members that own trucks report their odometers, which I've done for a number of years now. If you need help with this, please reach out to me and let me know so that I can help you. There have been some additional challenges in reporting in the recent past. In some cases, the ARB has been requiring a photograph of the odometer to be submitted along with reporting the odometer reading to verify the accuracy of the reported reading. So this creates an extra step in reporting uh, for some trucks. Also, last year, legislation went into effect that requires the Department of Motor Vehicles to withhold registration on trucks that are not in compliance with the ARB's truck and bus rule. So trucks that are not in compliance with the regular schedule or using one of the extensions have not been able to renew their registration with the DMV starting last year. However, as it goes with government, some things don't go as expected. Many trucks that were complying with the rule received notices from the DMV that their registration could not be renewed because the DMV thought that they were not in compliance. This created extra hurdles just to renew your DMV registration. Unfortunately, this also aligned with the five-year uh, special equipment vehicles that are up for renewal under the five-year cycle. Uh, 
many of these trucks that we use in agriculture have these SC plates and were affected by this glitch. Uh, I started to work with ARB on solutions to this uh, with individual members, but the solutions uh, presented were on a truck by truck basis. So this created a lot of hassle to work with truck owners uh, and me and ARB to get this resolved on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So I got our government affairs team at Western United involved uh, to work with our elected representatives and the DMV. Um, after a little bit of work, um, Jason was successful. We were told by the DMV that these issues had been corrected and that, it, and that appears to be the case because the letters from the DMV incorrectly denying renewal seem to have stopped. I have not seen one recently. However, there are still some truck owners out there that are dealing with this issue before it was corrected by the DMV. They still must contact the Air Resources Board regarding each individual trucks to get those trucks cleared. I've been concerned that truck owners faced with all of these hurdles, such as not being able to renew their trucks with the DMV or having to submit photos of their odometers to the Air Resources Board, they just give up on these compliant trucks. And I don't want that to happen because this creates additional burdens on our industry. And, and the thing is that these burdens are not even from regulations that are written, they're just from government bureaucracy uh, and errors and hurdles that, that are placed in front of us. And so um, I'm really hoping that people uh, take the effort to you know, get over these hurdles and keep these trucks and keep their costs down. Uh, if you need help either reporting with the Air Resources Board or renewing your DMV registration on a diesel truck, uh, again, I've, I've made the offer many times. I'm, I'm clearly here for you uh, and wanna help you with this. Um, I do wanna note, however, that there is not much I can do for trucks that are not in compliance with the rule. Um, I have been able to get a few of these into the low use exemption, exemption, but that's only good for trucks that travel less than a thousand miles per year. Uh, most non-compliant trucks will need to be replaced and there's nothing that I can do about that. I mean, the rule is the rule. Um, you know, if you're in compliance and they're putting a hurdle in front of you, I can help you with that. But if you're not in compliance, um, you know, I, I, I don't have a magic power um, to overrule the state of California. Uh, members have been asking me how long they'll be able to keep these trucks with 2010 or newer engines that currently comply with this rule. And based on the rules currently in place, no one has to replace a truck that already has a 2010 or newer engine. But the thing I always tell them is that rules can always be changed. Uh, I do want to point out something. This was an issue uh, last summer. Um, the Air Resources Board adopted a more recent rule called the Advanced Clean Truck Rule which requires a growing percentage of zero emission trucks be sold by manufacturers in the state. Uh, the first year that that requirement is in effect is 2024, and the percentage is depending on the type of truck uh, that we're talking about. But that rule does not require the turnover of existing trucks. Nobody's making you, you know, get rid of your trucks like the rule that we're talking about earlier. Uh, only, and that rule is only on manufacturers to sell a certain percentage of zero emission trucks. And with that, uh, that wraps up my presentation and I will be available for question and answer. So if anybody's got uh, any questions on this issue, um, please feel free um, you know, to ask. If you wanna talk to me individually, you can do that also. Paul, are you monitoring uh, the CARB's continuing discussion about requiring fleet vehicles to move all ZEV by 2024? Yes, that was that, uh, well, it, it, no, it, so, that was that last thing that I talked about. Uh, it does not require moving to all zero emission vehicles by 2024. In 2024, manufacturers have to sell a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles. Uh, and it's around 5%. It depends on whether it's you know a class two truck or a class eight truck that changes a little bit. 
Um, but I'll, I'll do, I have that rule in front of me. I have a fact sheet for it. And so in 2024, manufacturers have to sell a small percentage of zero emission vehicles. That moves up to by 2023, um, uh, let's pick a class here, like um, a class eight tractor sales. I, I think kind of what you'd be interested in a truck pulling like a walking floor trailer. 40% um, of those will have to be electric by 2035 of the sales, uh, not the fleet in the state, but it's a, a rule on manufacturers that 40% of their sales have to be zero emissions by 2035. So you see, that's not a, you know, it's not a requirement for all trucks in 2024. It's a uh, sales requirement over time. Did that answer Thank your you. question? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, there, uh, I, that, you know, this summer that rule was adopted in June or July and I heard that same uh, discussion um, but, you know, I've gone and looked at the rule. I'm looking at a fact sheet for that rule right now. Um, and, you know, I think it is going to pose some challenges in, in being able to get trucks, but it's not saying that you have to get rid of any truck. If the, the rules that are in place right now, if you own a truck with a 2010 or newer engine that meets current diesel emission standards, uh, the way the rules are written right now, you should be able to keep that truck forever as long as you can keep it running. And again, like I said, but rules you know, are likely to change uh, actually on this. But at this point, that's what it looks like. Hey, Paul, this is Frank. Hey, we, uh, we had a retriever truck that was licensed uh, and we, the, because of the age of the truck, we no longer can license, the, license that truck, but it doesn't go very far. Is, is there any way we can get that in that ultra low mileage program or? Yes, and I, I've done that with some. Um, so you are able to put a, a truck in that low use exemption and, and that's actually an exemption from the rule that truck is exempt. Um, and again, there's no deadline on that truck. You could continue to use it. You need to report your odometer readings annually and you need to stay under a thousand miles a year. Um, you do need to report back um, to the date where that truck went out of compliance you know, to show that you've stayed under a thousand miles, the truck could have never been out of compliance. Uh, but yes, I have done that with some folks. They come to me, hey, I got this truck. I got a letter from, you know, DMV or ARB, um, you know, but it, it, I use it to fill freestalls. What, what can I do? And I have been able to get those trucks into the low use exemption. It does require some documentation, usually past mileage. You know, what mileage have you driven in the past to show that it's been compliant? And then it requires that reporting of the odometer going forward. Okay, I'll get a hold of you. Yep, yeah, that's gonna be a one-on-one -on -one thing. So if there's no questions for um, the Zoom meeting here, we'll, uh, I'll stay on for another minute or two and wait for those. But uh, again, I'd like to just offer, I'm available you know, for individual questions. You can call me at the office uh, or email me. I think that information is in our newsletter. Always happy to talk uh, to members and, and help them out with these issues. Well, it's been a pretty good episode and the beginning of the year is always a good time to do some general housekeeping around the dairy and even in your record keeping. If you haven't updated your labor posters recently, please take a look and see if you need a new set for this year or if you would prefer our handy flip chart style book. It's the same information that you usually use to wallpaper your office, but it's in a little bit more of a compact format. 
We have the posters and the booklets on order. So if you're in need of an update, please let either Melissa or I know or the office and we'll send them out as soon as we get them into our office. Yeah, that's always a good thing to think about. It's like changing the batteries in your smoke detector and checking up on your labor posters. I feel like at the beginning of the year, good, good things to keep up on. Um, Darby, next Thursday, we don't have a virtual kitchen table meeting because it's our bi-monthly board meeting. We just wanted to remind folks that as always, those meetings are open to members. And if you'd like to join, just shoot Anya or Darby or I an email and we will send you the Zoom credentials to join that meeting. But we do have some really good virtual kitchen table meetings on tap for this winter and spring. Um, and then we are opened um, on a couple of weeks still. So if you have suggestions or content requests that you want to hear about a certain topic, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. And a huge thank you to Tiffany Lamandola, Tom Barcelos, our CEO Anya Radaba, and Paul Souza for joining us for today's episode. And thank you to all our listeners and our members. Remember, you can reach out to us with questions, comments, and content requests at wud.pod at gmail.com. You can reach Melissa at mlema at wudairies.com. And myself is Darby, D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform and have a great week. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.